No need for arduous seeking. All you have to do is follow the clues. You start to see this as a simulation, as a type of computerized AI manufactured reality. We are playing like putty into the hands of the manipulators who are just setting us at war with each other. my damies from the sunshine state i'm greg carlwood and we've been around long enough to notice that not only is the world run by many multi-generational families of parasites and the power-hungry psychopaths that play their game but littered throughout reality woven through corporate entertainment and circling around highly charged events is a tapestry of symbols synchronicities and similar numbers that suggests something a bit deeper is going on It's hard not to feel like our carefully crafted culture is nothing more than one big spell. And the true architects of everything are primarily a long line of occultists that have entranced the masses into widespread compliance and never-ending numbness. And it seems like today's guest William Ramsey would certainly share some of these thoughts as he's been hot on the heels of the Capstone Cabal for years now through his impressive and ever-ongoing body of work. He's written books like Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception in the West Memphis Three Murders, Children of the Beast, Aleister Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity, Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order, Global Death Cult, The Order of Nine Angles, Adam Waffen, and the Slaughter of the Innocents, and most recently, The Smiley Face Killers Investigating Suspicious Water Deaths of College-Aged Men in the U.S. and the World most of which are also covered in companion documentaries and his ongoing powerhouse of a podcast, William Ramsey Investigates. Let's dive into it. A jack of many conspiratorial trades, an occult agenda exposer, and multimedia master of his domain, William Ramsey, welcome to the higher side. Greg, thanks for the invite. Great to be with you. Yeah, man, it's a true pleasure. You've done a lot of great work, And it's rare that I hear about weird cults and esoteric orders that I haven't at least heard named before, but the Order of Nine Angles is definitely a new one for me, and I want to get into that, but I think I first became familiar with you during the Pizzagate days, where you were doing some real deep dives into all that darkness and a lot of the symbolism, and now we have the story of James Gordon Meek, an ABC reporter and senior producer who was also senior counterterrorism advisor to the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security, who referred to Pizzagate as a debunked conspiracy theory in at least one of his articles. Now he's pleading guilty to, quote, transportation and possession of child sexual abuse material. And the irony there is pretty thick, isn't it? Yeah, it's huge. It's unbelievable, really. And it goes back to the actual original truth of some of the research into what's now known as Pizzagate, but those original Instagram posts by James Oliphantus were really something else. And I think indicated that there was an active underground involved in all kinds of 
nefarious activities. Yes, I agree. And there were a lot of details that had nothing to do with a pizza code. But as years have gone on, I've just seen this code used more and more or the boy lover, girl lover symbols injected in all kinds of strange places you wouldn't expect. You'll see pictures come across social media where some priest will have a lapel pin or something like that. And it's like, well, there must be something to it because that's an odd symbol to have on your shirt if it doesn't mean what we're told it means. Agreed. And yeah, I've noticed a lot of stuff that I learned from Pizzagate or the Pizzagate research around today, understanding of what the term maps mean. And Abramovich is still around. I've learned about her through the Pizzagate research. I've done shows on her. I think she's an important figure in the New World Order and the occult and her connections to so many people, so many famous people, really. Kanye, the Kardashians, Lady Gaga. So it was kind of an eye-opening event, I think, and it's still relevant for people to look at it and hasn't been debunked. Like this guy Meek supposedly said, it's still relevant. And another thing that's interesting is Aliphantis' boyfriend at the time is the head of Media Matters, who just tried to slander, in my opinion, slander Elon Musk's ex, and they're getting sued right now. So, Right. Is that something Brock, I believe? Yes, David Brock, that's right. David Brock. Yeah, it's a tangled web, but a lot of these people that come up in the research, they end up either like Meeks actually getting convicted of the crime, or there's definitely some dicey things that make you think they're highly suspect. I was looking into Meek a little bit. He has two daughters, which is really sad because there's an insinuation there that their life hasn't been all that great. But the charges noted that Meek sent and received pornography of infants and toddlers, as well as content depicting sadistic and masochistic abuse of prepubescent children. In his search for content, Meek solicited lewd images from underage individuals and even posed as a minor himself. According to court documents, law enforcement found text message conversations between the former journalist and two girls, 14 and 15, who sent him pictures of their breasts. The same messages included a video of himself naked and holding his penis in his hand. And he was only sentenced to six years, which is crazy to me. That's another common theme. Light sentences for child abuse crimes, wouldn't you say? Yeah, there could actually be a book of pedophiles adjacent to people in power, whether it's Trudeau's close friends in Canada. I think one was New York guy. There's just been so many arrests from very, very, very dark stuff. So it's happening often. Yeah. Good point. Adjacent to people in power. So <laughs> this isn't really going to be the Meeks interview, but I did find this interesting because I was just looking into him, looking at his Wikipedia page, ABC, of course, connected to Disney. Check another box there. But his Wikipedia page says that he went to school with the daughter of CIA agent Rufus Phillips, who later published Meek's first work. So it's not like they were just classmates. And he neighbored CIA operative Lucien Conan, leading him to desire to work in the intelligence underworld. His father, John Martin Meek, had been a lobbyist and speechwriter for John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, and his mother worked, quote, in politics. This is not some random guy who worked hard and luckily landed his dream job as a journalist. He was basically born right into that swamp in Virginia. And 
we can just add them to that long list of connected people engaged with the darkest of dark stuff. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. I think that's another, like I said, another book. There's a long list of those people that have been caught. And I think Pizzagate, that was it. That was a nexus point for a lot of things going on. Was that pizza restaurant with the weird cold things outside? And how is this pizza guy, Alephantis, in Washington Magazine is one of the top 50 power brokers in D.C. if it wasn't for some type of trafficking and blackmail, right? So the blackmail stories are so legionous. I mean, Epstein is still relevant. People were blackmailed in the negotiation. It was Mitchell, actually, was one of the people who used Virginia Dufresne, probably one of the most known victims of the Epstein network. And then he went on to be an arbiter of the Palestinian-Israel negotiations. So there's actually a picture of Mitchell who probably was blackmailed, most likely part of that operation with Hillary Clinton, Netanyahu, and Abbas, who was the head of the Palestinian organization. So imagine if you have that blackmail material and you know, and you're negotiating this kind of one, two state negotiation. I think that you probably, you know, you had a good hand, I would say. That's just one of many stories, Greg. Richardson, we know, was part of that. There was just a settlement recently with Dershowitz and Jufre. That was within the last year. They settled that case of, I think she sued him for defamation because he said he didn't do it, but that got settled. So it never went to trial. It got to the cusp of trial. And it was very skilledly settled, by the way, because there were no admissions of guilt and no numerical numbers. But we know that she got paid like $12 million, or I think maybe it was 12 million pounds from Prince Andrew, right? King Charles III's brother. So that settlement was made public. That probably came right out of the Queen's, the former Queen account, direct account. But the Dershowitz one was really interesting as a lawyer too, just to see how that got managed. And Dershowitz is still around. And she said she had relations with him in a really interesting piece of the Maxwell trial was her biography. She actually wrote a self-biography to tell her story. And in that, that's where that information was. Wild, wild. Yeah, you know a lot about the various layers and the people involved. And we'll probably never get the smoking gun that will satisfy the mass public. I mean, Epstein should have been pretty damn close, but where there is smoke, there's plenty of fire. And speaking of this really dark stuff. Let's get into your book, Global Death Cult, The Order of Nine Angles, Adam Waffen, and the Slaughter of the Innocents. You write, this book will detail the foundation of a new ideology formulated by the Order of the Nine Angles, whose ideas and doctrines surfaced after being seated throughout the globe, concurrent with the rapid increase of international internet communications. I have no intent to promote a very dangerous religion and ideology, but to expose it and assist the reader in understanding a relatively new religious corpus as its earliest manuscripts are dated to the 1970s. Well, break us in here. We know these sorts of secret orders and occult groups run in high circles, but what makes the Order of the Nine Angles different, and what can you tell us about its formation? What makes them different from maybe another group, maybe the Church of Satan, Temple of Set, OTO, Ordo Templi Orientis? What differentiates them, according to its own founder, David Myatt, we can go into kind of his interesting persona, is their lethality. A part of their structure is to find and 
murder an individual. It's really unbelievable. So that's kind of what got me into reading about it. I had no idea about this group at all. This book was something that came out of my research into the Smiley Face Killer. Somebody said, hey, you should look at this group. Maybe they're doing it because the doctrines of this group is to commit crimes and not get caught, right? So you see this kind of phenomenon of the smiley face killers where young men are disappearing later to be found in water. Like it's kind of a perfect crime. Like it makes it look like an accident. And a lot of very skilled criminals do try to perpetrate these accidents. It's actually interesting because this new show on Netflix called Killer has almost kind of the similar ideology. He's talking about committing assassinations and getting away with it. And he includes drowning in it and also other accidental falling downstairs. So it fits in line with this order of nine angles ideology. So that's what differentiates it. And it got started out of, it's almost a weird kind of doctrine. There's thousands of documents and thousands of pages of documents that have really only been written within the last 40 years, but it comes out of the British far right, the literal Nazi far right. So it's a melding of Nazi ideology and occultism in a new version of kind of occultism. The founder or whoever put it together, there's some disputes about whether he wrote all of it, but the founder passed through these other occult orders and then devised his own kind of based and maybe Crowley was very sympathetic to the Kabbalah or Jewish kind of occultism. This guy was the opposite of that. He didn't want to have anything to do with the Kabbalah or anything like that. So he kind of formulated his own occultism based upon kind of old English concepts and the tree of word or the tree of fate. But they have like a kind of Hitler as avatar worship. And we can go into Nazi occultism too, which is probably a whole nother show. But pieces of that are integrated into this new group called the Order of Nine Angles, which really got its kickoff because of the internet. Just like you said there in the intro, the documents were able to be spread around. And then they had little mini cells everywhere of people with this idea, and they called them Nexions. It was kind of a new terminology that he made up. He was actually, whoever wrote this was very good with words and terms and kind of made up their own concepts that are original and specific to the Order of Nine Angles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have a lengthy section about their rituals, their black mass. It seems somewhat similar to the Gnostic mass where there's a priestess and they have sex on the altar as part of the ceremony. Everybody disrobes and it's a little odd. They have, I guess, a, a wax figure and they do a mock killing of it and they all chant, kill and laugh, kill and laugh. Wild stuff. but. I think a lot of people might think some of this is performative and kind of over the top, and we might be looking at a LARP rather than a real cult. What would you say to that? How do you know this is like a real cult to be taken seriously? That's a great question. And a lot of people say this is just a big intel op. And that's kind of what they say about Crowley too, just a big intel op, that nobody's actually going out and committing or doing these things in real world, that it's just something like online. Well, the fact is, is that there's been ties to the Order of Nine Angles crimes actually committed. And I have a full section in this book about those. And I think it really just shows that it is happening. You have a guy, Meltzer, who recently got sentenced. He was trying to set up his own armed military group through the Order of Nine Angles to have a terrorist attack like in 
conformance with ONA principles. You have another guy in Toronto, his name was Billam von Nudigem, who literally went out and stabbed people and was a member or was influenced by the Order of Nine Angles. You can hear him chanting. If you want to see what these guys' religion is, he actually set up his own kind of little ritual center with the pyramid that they have, and he was chanting in just like an Order of Nine Angles thing. So he actually may have committed other crimes than that. So those are two things that the Order of Nine Angles ideology is influenced. But also the reason why I have Adam Waterfront in the title is that that far-right kind of occultism has bled out from the ONA into even American far-right Nazism. And I show all the evidence for that in the book. It's very strange. It's very underground. But those guys were involved in crimes and deaths. And one guy killed his girlfriend's parents. Another guy went out and killed this Jewish guy, Blaise Bernstein, in Orange County. And actually, the founder of Adam Waffen, Russell, was recently arrested. He was plotting to destroy the entire electrical grid of the city of Baltimore. And so he got out of jail, was causing problems, and then he's probably back in jail for the rest of his life. So I think people who say that this is a LARP or fake, there's actual real-world criminality that's happening. Evidence is in my book about that. Yes, yes. The whole chapter on national news stories involving people who are attached to this order. It's pretty wild. And I'm just curious, the name is very provocative. I'm sure people listening are well aware of magical ritual in general, the pentagram. Where does the order of nine angles get its name? It comes from their symbol. So they have this order of nine angles. There was a ritual in the temple of Set about the ritual of nine angles. According to the founder or Myatt, it is, and you'll see that on the cover of my book, this kind of cross hatched cross line. It's the seven planets. And then also they believe that there are portals into kind of like this a causal realm. And the not two of those angles in that symbol are portals into some other realm. So they think that they can presence or actually be, I would call it possessed by these entities. There's 21 dark gods that are very similar maybe to H.P. Lovecraft's dark gods. But they write in their books, they distinguish themselves from it, but they actually presence through these portals in the sky and everything happens at night. So they go out and look at a specific constellation and try to do some ritual. So that's kind of the nine angle concept. And what do you think about this? Do you think it's just some superstition or wishful thinking on their part? It's hard for me to believe because so many people dedicate their lives to reading the old grimoires and going through multiple orders and all of their literature and then forming their own orders. And there is a case to be made that it's all bullshit because of something like Scientology. Like it seems like he took occultism and spun it off into a blackmail gathering intelligence religion sort of thing. And there doesn't really seem to be a ton of actual practical magic there, although we're not in that club. But this belief that there are these portals to an acausal realm, do you think there's some merit to that? Is this something in the structure of reality that a person can tap into? Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe it's dark. But do you think this is possible or more superstition? I think that our belief is really incredible. <laughs> so if you believe in whatever it is, it could be it. I think that 
I've talked to other mad people who are involved in ritual magic, ceremonial magic, of which this group has ceremonial magical aspects to it, and they say it's real. So they believe that there's something beyond the five senses that they're in contact with or drawing power from and trying to get correspondences and do this kind of thinking. So I think you'd have to talk to some of these people in the ONA. I've talked to a few. I've had a former Adam Waffen member actually on my show. But you'd have to talk to them to see if they think it works. I think they think it works. I believe that Crowley thought he was getting magical power from his rituals and things like that. I think the evidence is there. And I've talked to other guys that are involved in the magical world presently, and they say that these rituals and things that they do, they provide them with their energy or whatever, whether it's like you will it into existence, this kind of idea. I think maybe there is some power to that. I don't know. I don't practice magic, so (laughs) I wouldn't know, but that's what they say. Yeah, well, a lot of occultists have commented on the theatrics of a lot of these rituals, especially if you go back a long time. And the theatrics could be seen to play a role in getting you out of baseline consciousness and reinforcing that belief. Because if we're dealing with the reverse placebo effect, you would need to believe it. And it's a catch-22 because you can't believe it until you've seen some kind of evidence of it. But if you get in the robes and you get the candles going, like you can kind of push yourself towards belief a little earlier, I would say. And it makes sense that it could be a belief thing, a reverse placebo effect, given how many different orders there are and how many different systems there are. And people who get engaged in those systems say it works, but it's not just one thing. So how do you explain that? Dozens and dozens of magical systems that are all completely separate with their own rituals and their own gods work. Well, this explains it. Right. All over human history, this whole ceremonial magic has been going all the way back to Assyria, right? Or the Babylonian, which this group, the Order of Nine Angles, alleges, you know, that's really the kind of like holy grail of occultists is to trace your magic all the way back to Babylon before Egypt, right? But If you look at all these cultures and all this stuff, there's always a shaman. There's always something. Even the Bible has it. Moses was in contest with Yanis and Yambers. They're fighting with the snakes. This is biblical belief is all of these extrasensory events are happening with these magicians. So I think it's that in my other research in Children of the Beast, you can hear from kind of a modern guy who defined himself as a warlock, which is Kenneth Anger, who was friends with Bobby Boussoulet. And Bobby Boussoulet said the guy had power. Like, he literally had power. Like, he was seeing visions and all kinds of crazy things were happening. I don't know if it was the impact of drugs or LSD, which could be actually perceived as kind of a magical event in itself. But Bobby Boussoulet said Anger could, like, command spirits and have visions and things like that. So my point is, is, like, this whole magical thinking or magical events really permeate almost all civilizations back to recorded history. Yeah, that's all good information. There was one thing in there when it comes to their beliefs and practices where you're talking about the order of nine angles and you mentioned shape-shifting. You say what is especially interesting is that the O9A associates the mage and to a lesser extent the master slash mistress of the dark arts 
with skill and shape-shifting, by which they mean not the mythological ability of a living human to somehow transform oneself. What do they mean by shape-shifting? Obviously, there's the skinwalker practice, so a lot of people think this is an actual thing shamans can do, despite how over-the-top it sounds, how illogical it sounds, but what did they mean? That's a good question. I have the concepts, the order of nine angles in there, and there's a lot of different concepts, but shape-shifting and scrunching are kind of like two of these weird words I was kind of talking about, their language, but I think that they think that they can actually change their through these dark gods coming in is actually change their outer looks and things like that so that's what i think i mean i have to go back and reread but they can somehow transform themselves into vampires or some of these dark gods to do the sinister sorcery that they talk about right and then you go on to say of course the most disturbing aspect is their open promotion of human sacrifice which they refer to as calling And we talked about how there are some people that have gotten caught up in this or were heavily engaged in it who then did commit real crimes. But is there more to say about their promotion of human sacrifice? Do they describe why a person would do it, what benefit there is to such a thing? And has the founder, David Myatt, ever been convicted or proven that he committed some kind of sacrifice? No, to my knowledge, has not been convicted or anything. But they have a long-term goal to create a Homo Galacticus, right? And so they are transforming Homo sapiens into some other galactic race, really. So it's almost like Nazism. You're creating a new race. And things that are impeding that formation of this dark empire that they're trying to create are Homo Huberati, people who are arrogant or people who for one reason or another, have some kind of character flaw. And those are the people they select for the offer or sacrifice according to their doctrines and then secretly kill them or agree to kill them. So their people are tested like that. And how many people have been you know, caught doing that? Not many. There's been a few. There's one guy who, his name was Daniel Hussein, who made a pact through another guy whose name is his fake name is E.A. Kowetting, who's associated with the Order of Nine Angles. It was apparently written for them through one of the Nexians. But Daniel Hussein went out into a park in the night and made a bullet pack that he was going to kill somebody and get away with it. Mary ONA thing and went out and killed two girls celebrating a birthday party. And this was in the last couple of years. So that's real one where one guy's been caught and there's questions about his sanity. Maybe they sentenced him this year, but E.A. Wedding's old Become a Living God. He got kicked off of social media because of his association with Danny Hussein. And it shows the international character of it, too, because E.A. Wedding is in Utah and Daniel Hussein is in London. So you can see this kind of international contact. But that's just one thing where people really get caught. There was a case in Russia where they lured somebody out into a park and she was killed. This is something that I don't think is even in my book, a recent case, but they were supposedly ONA associated. So there may be other cases. I mean, the thing is, is that this group is supposed to do everything in secret, right? They don't like wear the ONA patch around like maybe a Mason does. So you don't know really who's out there acting on these dark ideas. Right. And if there is some kind of power to it, to their pact with these dark entities, you would think that the benefit would be the not getting caught part. 
So that opens up a lot of speculation as to how deep it really goes, how many people are participating, and how many murders can be attributed to the people making these dark pacts. There is one thing I could say, Greg, is that there's this whole section on these Nexians. There's proof that these cells are in all a lot of major cities all throughout Europe and the U.S., and so people are practicing it. I mean, you can go onto Facebook and see these Nexians. I think they're still there. So that shows that there are certain cells of these actors. Yeah, serious scope to it. And you mentioned that term Homo Galacticus. That's another one of those universals with these occult orders is the general belief that man must be transformed or evolved beyond our current state. And it's usually this cosmic kind of thing or this technocratic kind of thing. Even the title Become a Living God, that's essentially that same idea, another take on it. What do you think about that universal almost theme that something has to be fundamentally changed about the human being, that we must trigger our own next stage of evolution? And then like comparing that to what we generally see going out there, there's a few campaigns people try to peg to this general occult Gnostic type of philosophy. Do you think that connection is there? And is that kind of what's maybe driving some aspects of our culture that the people who are shaping it have this belief that we must be transformed and evolved? Yeah, I have no doubt about that. But it goes back to the doctrines of Alice Bailey, and you can see the externalization of the hierarchy and how similar it is to Nazism and the concept of the subhuman the Germans would have called it the Ubermensch and the Untermenschen, right? So there's an above and below. And part of the Nazi doctrine was to become the overman, right? So I think that Hitler was acting that out. And I think that idea has seeped into this group. And I think even you take the ideas of Bailey to Barbara Marx Hubbard and Spengler and some of these other characters, this Luciferian notion of evolution. I think that that permeates the present drive for this new world order and this whole mass poisoning event that just took place and these global wars. So you're seeing kind of a resettling of the entire global chessboard in some ways. And I think that the ideas of man becoming a new being is actually kind of a Luciferian doctrine instead of like perfecting yourself from the inside. It's kind of like you're creating a new race with this new ideas. And I think that goes back to Bailey and Nazism. Right. I mean, you can really go all the way back to the Gnostic texts, this idea that reality is a prison and that we must transform ourselves to break out of it, in a sense. And you could see how some transhumanists might be motivated by even ideas that go back that far, because how do we sense more of our world? How do we break through the illusion? Maybe you need a chip in your head. That might be how it gets accomplished. Right. So I think that that Gnostic idea is what's going on with some of these transhuman movements and why they're part of this great kind of recent rollout, the global rollout of like 10 million genders and all that. That's all Gnostic. You're absolutely right. And occultic, right? And that God is the overlord and we're trying to become our own gods. It's kind of like the Promethean ideal. Right. The Demiurge, Yaldabaoth kind yeah. of thing. Blavatsky. Yeah. So 
Towards the end of the book, as you mentioned, you do tie it in nicely with some of your other work on the smiley face killers by saying, is there a connection between the phenomenon of young men disappearing at night in the U.S., the U.K., and around the world and the O9A or other occult groups? Are the water deaths a culling or associated with some ritual? Why is there a smiley face symbol on two main O9A informational websites? Lapis Philosophicus and the Camlad Ruining. And of course, the Smiley Face Killer got the name from the Smiley Face Graffiti that was found at several sites of these deaths. But talk to us about your thoughts on how these could connect and give those unfamiliar with the Smiley Face Killer saga a little bit of info about the scope of those deaths, because it is a pretty creepy phenomenon. It really is. I'll answer the second question first. I've just put out my most recent book two months ago about this investigation that I've been doing for seven years now, really. I've made two documentaries. My book was meant to be kind of putting all that information in one spot so people could just walk around with it. But it's really this phenomenon that was given the name from Gilbertson and Gannon, the two original researchers, 20 years ago. And they're still kind of in the game. They just put out something on Oxygen, a six-part series. To me, it wasn't broad enough. But they gave this phenomenon because they saw it happening in two different places. Gilbertson was in Minnesota, Gannon's in New York, and they started seeing young men disappear at night, later to be found in water. And they found an association between the symbol and some weird cases, like Todd God would show up on his tombstone, somebody would put a smiley face on there, so super creepy. And oftentimes, they would find a spray-painted smiley face in a place where they thought the men went into water. So that's how this whole phenomenon got its name, the smiley face killers. But it's been going on, and I've actually, in my book, I have over 350 of these types of cases in it listed in that book, based upon other researchers as well. There's been a lot of different researchers. So I tried to provide a history so people could kind of see how the understanding of this phenomenon has increased over time, and that's kind of the purpose of the book. So that's kind of the general overview of the Smiley Face Killers, and it kind of really peaked in the last year because... There was this whole series of these drownings that happened in Chicago and then also in Austin at the same time. There were like five water deaths of the same kind of phenomenon, out late at night, disappeared, later to be found in water, and then 10 in Chicago. And so it really kind of picked up on social media. So a lot of people became interested, but a lot of them saw it as merely a regional event, like, oh, this is just happening in Chicago. No, it's not. It's happening all over the world, UK, Europe. There might be other cases that I don't know about just because of language barriers, but it really is a kind of a newer, almost like the ONA in a lot of ways, because this is a kind of a new phenomenon. You couldn't find many cases back before 1990. Like the, my original case is 1997. That's McNeil in New York, who was a Fordham college student. So that's the second one. And is there a connection between this group and the smiley face kills? I don't know. But I've seen the use of the smiley face by the Order of Nine Angles, and it correlates with this kind of use of the smiley face in the smiley face killers. And it may be something that there's something dark with, like the dark gods. Some of them live under water. Like if you even look at some of the symbols of the ONA, it's called a tricycle. So the trident represents kind of Typhon, this god who was thrust out of heaven by Zeus, right? So it's the symbol of this kind of thing, but he lives underwater. So these water deaths, it might be meaning a kind of a water type of sacrifice. I don't know. 
I don't know what these guys really are doing, but there may be a connection between the ONA and the spy face killers. I don't have a proof of that. One of the interesting things in the corpus of the ONA is these kind of almost like fables. They're like Aesop's fables, like teaching fables. So they're obviously fiction. But within that fiction, they're giving advice on how to commit crimes and get away with it or how to do rituals. And so in one of like some of these writings, it's like, okay, go into a city you've never been in before, avoid CCTVs, commit a crime and get out and get away. And that's all in the the greater idea, I think, of the founders of the ONA is to accelerate. So it's a common concept within the far right and maybe even communism, I don't know, but to accelerate the downfall of the current civilization to bring in the new one, right? So if you commit a lot of crime or undercut the rule of law, and these guys, I mean, one of their doctrines is they are above the law. They don't operate on the law system. If you're a member of the ONA and a believer, you're above the law. So that would kind of tie in with your statement, are these guys committing this kind of crime? Potentially. And I think the law enforcement has kind of dropped the ball. A lot of times they're not asking the right questions in some of these instances of when they capture people and their connections or, you know, like Meltzer, why did you try to contact the order of my name? Who else is in the group, right? You never find that out. You don't find that out with Bon New to Jim either, or some of these other characters is like, are you on the septenary way, right? You have a seven part way to go up to this kind of almost near Godhead in the order of nine angles where you can like store your spirit in a pyramid and take over other people's souls, which is really heavy. <laughs> but the third part of it is like you commit the offering, right? The sacrifice. But the police don't seem to have an interest. I think it's passe within law enforcement to investigate people's occult ideas. And I think it's a mistake because some of these guys are operating with this kind of strange ideology. They're acting out their will on that strange ideology. Yeah. yeah and to be using the smiley face on at least two websites that associate with the material is a bit of a red flag and it's just creepy to think there's a group out there even if it isn't this one by name there seems to be a group out there stalking able-bodied college-aged guys who are maybe coming home drunk from the bar and they're being stalked and in their vulnerable state hit over the head and thrown in the river i guess greg there's no doubt about it it's definitely happening i thought it was an urban myth. I've watched like 20 guys, 20 men disappear. I've watched all of the news media, and I include that in my new book, the news media, the families, the missing persons pictures, and then to be found later in water. Like I've literally seen the phenomenon repeat itself over and over again. And it's interesting you say hitting the head and dropping the water. I don't know if you've read my book, but in one of the chapters, there was a guy in Boston. I don't know where you are, but he was in Boston, came out. At, there's three victims out of TD Garden. So if you go to TD Garden, be afraid because people are getting stocked coming out of basketball games. This is November 2022. He came out. He went to the river to take a leak. He doesn't remember anything. He was found face down in water. People rescued. Hey, this guy's found face down in water. What's going on? They went and rescued him. And he had the same thing. Somebody had hit him so hard. I think his ear kind of came off, but he had a Jeez. huge bruise on the side of his head. And he was face down in water for five minutes. He doesn't remember it. So he doesn't even know what happened, but he could have been another one of these type of victims. And strangely, that story, which is really odd, and it goes into this theme of law enforcement kind of dropping the ball. It was featured on local media. So you can go see this whole media story. And before he got rescued, somebody was there holding onto him who got away. 
Nobody knows that guy's name. They don't know why he was there. Nobody asked the question why he's there. It's unbelievable. So he might have been the perpetrator. Wow. The other thing is like, what's this motivation? Why would you do this? But if you are a believer in this kind of ideology, that's your motive, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I read your book, Global Death Cult, and with the smiley face killers, I had to just rely on you talking about it in previous interviews and on your own show. But the subtitle of the book is Who is Abducting, Torturing, and Murdering College-Aged Men in the U.S. and U.K.? What are some of the signs of torture? Because you would think that when you picture this crime, you tend to picture someone running by a guy, conking him on the head, throwing him in the river right there on his stroll home. But torture is another level. No doubt. One of the real mysteries of this is that some of these people are not put in the water the same time they disappear, right? And there's evidence that they have not been in the water for that long. And where are they being held? What's going on? And as these cases kind of develop, there's been more and more evidence that's come out that these people are being tortured of some sort. And even being kept somewhere is being as tortured, right? Like, so if you're kept in somebody's dungeon or whatever. So there are the original case that I mentioned earlier, his name is McNeil. And he disappeared in Manhattan. He was supposed to be going north to Fordham, the university where he was residing and studying. Instead, he disappears and later is to be found in a water recycling facility very south down the Hudson Bay, who another victim was found too, a guy by the name of Andrews. So there's very common things. Same thing happened to Andrews. Disappeared, found in this water treatment facility. The police tell his parents, sorry about your son. There's an accidental drowning. They said, well, let's see the autopsy report. Let's get a specialist. And so they got one of the best people you could get, a forensic examiner, to look at it, a guy by the name of Cyril Weck. And so he looked at the medical examiner from New York's report, this autopsy. What did he find? He said, this guy's been hit in the head with a hammer, and he looks like he was tied up in a chair and blowtorched. So the upper part of his body shows the aspects of being exposed to flame. And the parents had no idea. The police didn't tell them either. So they don't tell them these things. And so they just kind of process it and get it done. So it's a real mistake by the law enforcement. That's just one case. More recent cases of Dakota James in Pittsburgh. Same thing happens. He's disappeared for 40 days. He's missing for 40 days. He disappears out of downtown Pittsburgh. He's found in, I think, the Ohio River downstream. But his body's in almost near perfect shape. He has no discoloration. So where has he been for 40 days? Bodies decompose fairly rapidly. He had no decomposition. And the local DA is like, hey, sorry, your son's dead. Same thing happens. The parents go, I want to see the autopsy report. And so they didn't get, it was an accidental drowning. Cyril Weck lives in Pittsburgh. So they got Cyril Weck again for another one of these types of cases. He looks at it, he says, what's that rope mark around his neck? Why does Dakota James have a rope mark around his neck? And I can see it. I'm not a forensic examiner. I can tell if somebody has like a burn from a wrist or, you know, rope around their wrist or neck. Clearly, you can see it with your own eyes. So the family's like, well, why didn't you guys tell me this? And so one of the common stories of these families just trying to figure out what the heck is going on is the law enforcement is not, they always just call it an accident. So those are two cases of torture. Another is Chris Jenkins out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was found to have a clump of hair in his hand. 
and he looked like he got beat. Uh, one of the interesting things about Chris Jenkins is that he played lacrosse, so he was always beat up and bruised. He was always nursing an injury like an NFL player. He played goalie, so people are chucking this ball at him as hard as they can, right? And when they found his body, he had no bruising. So where was he to heal for that amount of time, right? So that's another one. Another one is Tommy Booth out of Pennsylvania. He was missing. He was in a place previously searched. A lot of these guys show up in places that are previously searched. That's another aspect of the phenomenon. Booth was found in like an inch of water. Somebody had been hitting him with cigarette lighters. So he had those little burns on his arm. And I think other elements of torture. So what's going on? Why are the cops not divulging this information to the public? which is a good question. And why are these guys being tortured? So there's a lot of mystery in these cases. Like they're missing for sometimes a lengthy period of time before they're found. Yeah. The stuff with the cops and the autopsy performers, there's layers to that. You know, like the first layer is saying, well, they often want to just keep cases simple and process them. And so they leave out important details, trying to just close a case and move on to the next one and tamp down any drama or keep things from getting out of their hands, you know, spiraling out of control. And then there's another layer of, Sometimes police and people connected in certain cities and towns are actually involved in this kind of thing, or they at least know some people that are involved with it. So they're like, oh, this is one of their situations. Let's just keep it neat and tidy for them. So yeah, it's really weird when you look at some high profile deaths or the careers of high profile coroners and you're like, Whitney Houston, like you go down the list of all these really suspect deaths and they just fly in the same corner to do the autopsy report. And it's like, well, what's that about? That's clearly a big red flag. So it's tough to know. I think there's even on a small scale in small communities, they'll have these kind of situations going on. No doubt. I think it's very strange. If you look at the coroner for, it might be a political thing too, like it's a political network. The coroner for Dakota James was a Chinese guy from China. So like his whole job may have just been installed as part of like the party structure in Pittsburgh, which apparently is very strong democratic, right? And I think there's also an incentive to not panic the public or really let people know that this is happening because a lot of these are in college towns, Boston, Chicago. So why would somebody want to send their kid there if they're going to possibly get abducted and tortured or murdered? I had one guest who likened it to the city in Jaws, right? Like he doesn't want to panic everybody to think that there's a man-eating shark out there, right? So business can keep going. So I think that might be a real incentive. And I know that the feds know because actually the mother of Dakota James, she went into the DA in Pittsburgh and she didn't know this, but when she sat down, somebody from the Secret Service and from the FBI was there in the meeting with the DA. So the feds were involved in her son's case and with no explanation, like, What's going on? Like, are you here to cover it up or are you here to actually investigate it? <laughs> yeah. And another aspect of your work that I really love is going through pop culture and seeing where occult symbols are seated throughout. And it's not necessarily always the best content for an audio only show. But every time I hear about a new thing from an old movie I used to really love, I mean, I just get a real charge out of just 
having that stuff exposed, like the layers within films, it's just crazy. And you have done some aspects of pop culture seeding work with the smiley face. And it's hard to know with the smiley face as a symbol because it goes back to the 60s and the hippie movement. And is it really just somebody using it because of that reason? Is it two parallel reasons? Are they winking and nodding to the smiley face killers? It's kind of hard to say why a symbol would be in some pop culture, but talk to us about the seeding of the smiley face symbol as you've done the work on it. There's a lot. And I think that there's an esoteric and an exoteric meaning. So the exoteric is just a smiley face person, but under their meaning, it's there like smiling through tragedy. And I think that that's basically what Alan Moore is imparting in The Watchmen with his character, the comedian. He smiles at violence and death. So it would tie into something with the smiley face killers. You're supposed to, we know it's tragic that this kid is dead. And that's another element of these cases. Like you're taking people out of the society who possibly contribute to society, right? These guys are all college educated, smart, usually good looking guys. So getting back to the comedian, it's it's a central component of the Watchmen is this comedian guy. And so that's kind of really where it started for me, like I write in the intro of my new book, that that's where I started to see the correlation in the common culture and to the smiley face killers. So I think there's obviously an underground cult network. These guys contact each other globally. So they have understandings. My understanding is the smiley face goes back and is used by Burroughs, who was a very dark character. But that's really one predominant place. The other is Fight Club, right? It's used in Operation Mayhem or whatever. They use the smile. And it's actually used within the promotional materials of Fight Club, which is interesting. If you read the book, the end of the character, when he shoots himself in the face, it turns into a grizzled smiley face. So it's not featured in the final sequence of Fight Club, which actually hints at 9-11, which is a whole other story. But those are two very prominent and really one of the more recent one, which is remarkable, the use of the smiley face and which is suffused with ONA ideology from beginning to end is Ed Sheeran's song, Bad Habits. So if people want a real primer on the ONA's doctrines, you can just go to YouTube and type in Bad Habits. And his other songs are full of ONA ideology, drowning. Really? Sheeran has a smiley face tattoo. But the Bad Habits, really, the whole thing starts with the sun going down, and then it ends with the sun coming up. And so you see him shapeshift. He becomes a vampire. He goes through these smiley face balloons. He's guiding some other mini vampire. He has his own Nexian, his own cult. All of the other people are like zombies, right? So that's kind of the ONA view. It's actually a satanic view where people are not of us or like chattel or cattle or something like that. But bad habits is really remarkable. And what's interesting and somewhat shocking is the popularity of that song, which was number one or uh, top 10 all over the world. And on YouTube alone, it's had 500 million views. So how many of those people know that they're being exposed to the ONA's ideology? Probably one out of 100 know what that song really means. It's shocking because I read the book and then that song came out. I was like, that's obvious. I know what they're doing. They're seeding the concepts of the ONA. And it's really interesting. One of his closer friends is a group called Bring Me the Horizon, right? So what that means is that's when the sun comes up. So they've been out all night, but then the horizon pops up and the sun comes up. Very dark stuff, a lot of drowning motifs. Who have they collaborated with other than Ed Sheeran? 
is this girl Grimes, who was oh, uh, an alt singer who is Elon Musk's third wife. I don't know what they call him, Paramore. I mean, he's had three children with her by now. So if you think this ONA kind of concepts are just on paper, they are filtering through the culture without question and are connected very powerfully. Yes. And Grimes in particular, if you look at some of her videos that have been decoded, there's some wild stuff in there about coronavirus and the vax on like a Egyptian tablet. Transhumanism, I think. Yeah. There's all kinds of wild stuff there. But you mentioned Fight Club. That's another one where you've really picked it apart. Tyler Durden is 11 letters, and that's one of Crowley's key numbers. You've written a whole book, Prophet of Evil, about Aleister Crowley and his system and 9-11 and how his numbers that were important to him pop up all over the event. Well, I remember the end of Fight Club, kind of, but I didn't recall that it was the actual Twin Towers that are falling, or is it just symbolically looking like the Twin Towers? They are the two Twin Towers of L.A. at the Avenue of the Stars, right? So Fincher is in L.A. Those Twin Towers, they're very well known. Actually, some very important lawyers have their offices there. But if you ever see it from the sky, it literally has the eye in the triangle motif for its garden. So you can actually look down on it. But at the very end of Fight Club, he's standing there holding hands with the girl, Tyler Durden, as all the buildings go down. And one last bit are two buildings. This is 1999, right? Two buildings in the background, and then they drop. And I think that that is a hint to 9-11. I truly do. Mm. And you mentioned the soap. That's a major theme. I know so many dudes back in college who had a Fight Club poster on their wall. It's always the soap. What was that about? You say that is a direct symbolic reference to druidic human sacrifice? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in the book, it's played out and explained more in the book by Palniuk, who's been on Joe Rogan a lot. This guy's part of a transgressive literature, right? That goes back to Burroughs and through some other very shady characters. But Palniuk knows a lot. But in the Fight Club actual book, if you read it, and I recommend people do read it. It's very interesting. He knows the numerology too, right? Tyler Durden, five and six, like you said. He talks about the soap as what happens when some in Ireland, when people were sacrificed, the effluent from the sacrifice would come down and they'd make soap out of it. So in the symbology of Fight Club, soap represents human sacrifice. And there are references to human sacrifice within the book and the film. And one section of the film and the book is the same thing. You're supposed to actually show your human sacrifices by bringing these people's IDs back to your cult head or whatever it is. Because there is kind of like a monastic cult element to Fight Club in the book and the film. But in the film, there's shots of smiley faces throughout the film. But there's one quick shot of these IDs up on the wall. And it says, I think it says human sacrifice, if I remember correctly. But that's what Fincher is symbolically showing to the audience. They don't know what they're seeing, but I do. And in the sequence with the smiley face that he has, I mean, something else. Brad Pitt makes this like thumb symbol to his chin real quick, which is totally occult. And then there's this other guy who's a total occultist who runs this kind of a bot. Jared Leto's watching the smiley face thing. And he still uses that in his symbology. So they know. There's something very secretive and dark 
associated with the use of the spotty face symbol. There's no question about it. Right on. And let's talk a little bit about Prophet of Evil. Not a book I read, but I've heard you talking about it a lot. One of the major things I've heard you mention is that all three of the planes, or all four of the planes on that day, are numbered with numbers that are very important to Crowley. Talk to us about that. Yeah, key numbers. 11 is the key number of Crowley and magic. It goes back to the Golden Dawn. You want to talk about ceremonial magic. That's a whole other show. <laughs> but a lot of famous people came out of the Golden Dawn, including Crowley. And there was a work from the founder. of the, It was a ceremonial magician post-Masonic. So you have to go through Masonic stuff to get into the Golden Dawn. But Yates is a very famous poet who came out of there and attributed all of his skills as a poet to magic. And you can see like stuff in Ireland's National Museum about his magical practices. But during that, 11 was a very important number because it's the number of magic. It's the number of five and six, the pentagram and the hexagram coming together. And Crowley kind of integrated that into what he called Belima, which was his religion. He called his new religion that was going to compete with Christianity, Belima. He had a seminal event in Egypt in 1904, and he supposedly received this book from an entity he called Awas, called it the Book of the Law. And in that book, there's like a series that it's really divided into three parts. And in one section, there's a statement where he says, 11 is my number and the number of us. So it's whatever this entity is telling him, if it really occurred, is 11's a prime number. So Crowley integrates that into kind of his system. So 11's important. 93 is also important. According to Gematria, which is a subset of Kabbalah, Gematria is transforming a word into a numerical value. And two words that were central to Crowley were Thelema and Agape, will and love, right? And so those both equal 93, and you see that on the 93 plane. And then 77 is really another important, 77 names of Satan. But in Crowley's system, it was a subpart of the beast. Like they came together and became Babylon's kind of a weird system. But I explain it more in my book. And then 175 is a ritual that Crowley had and kind of suffuses concepts of people who are Luciferian, and it is having a ritual for the God you adore, right? So that's it. And you can read it all in my book, but all those numbers. So the first plane to hit the Twin Towers, which were 110 stories, right? Like, that's not random. The first plane was plane 11, and then the second one was 77, and then 93 crash in Shanksville. 175 hit the Pentagon, right? Yes, exactly. Which, one more funny thing that is probably not random, but the groundbreaking ceremony for the Pentagon took place on September 11th. Yeah, I knew about that one. Very wild. And in terms of seating in pop culture, that is probably the most seated event ever. There's the Super Tramp album. There's a couple of different musical albums that have stuff right on there. There's obviously the Matrix Passport probably the craziest sync period because of the content of the matrix 1999 too right yeah 1999. yeah that's when the movie came out and his passport expires september 11 2001 and even back then i thought it was weird but now that we are where we are in retrospect you see the patriot act and the surveillance state all spiraling out of that event and it even adds more weight to its meaning and it's just the craziest and then i've seen in the trailer i think you show gene hackman saying 
9-11. And I believe just based on what he's wearing, that's from Enemy of the State, I would guess, which is another surveillance state film. I didn't know there was a 9-11 sync in that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's there. The only other thing I wanted to try to squeeze in here was a recent episode you did with Gregory Harms, which was really good, breaking down the Palestine-Israeli conflict with new information that I hadn't heard. He brought up the trope that many people just say, oh, those people over there have been fighting over their holy land for thousands of years, which has been a phrase that was seeded so we don't really dig any deeper, when really, he says that they did a pretty good job coexisting before the UN handed 56% of the land at the end of World War II over to form Israel. And even that didn't cause as much conflict as the Six-Day War did. The Six-Day War was when in 1967, Israel occupied another 22% of Greater Palestine. And Greg Harms basically said that most of the conflict arose out of that, which is like a lot of people's whole lifetime. So they see it in their whole lifetime from the 60s to today and say, oh, it's been happening for thousands of years. Well, not really. And apparently... The Palestinians' main problem or main gripe is they just want that 22% back. But that story doesn't ever really come out. So it's like, oh, this big tug of war, and they've just always been fighting. And even since the Six-Day War, they've clearly lost even more territory. But I just thought that was very interesting. And he also mentioned in that interview, or maybe you did, that Woodrow Wilson's advisor said they're creating a place for a future war. And that was kind of the parallel, you know, we talked about earlier about seeding something for deep into the future. It seems like the whole creation of Israel was them acknowledging, well, whenever we need to dust off some kind of conflict to make it a bigger thing, to support the military industrial complex, we have this little powder keg sitting over here for whenever we're ready to use it. And I just thought that was an interesting episode, obviously. The speculation is this could get us into World War III. It seems like the globalists are trying anywhere, anyhow, anybody, like, please fight back. Please hit us so that we can hit you 10 times harder and get World War III kicked off. And that's another concern going forward. But I liked that episode. Uh, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on this particular conflict. And if you are uh, thinking it might spill over into the big World War III. It is fascinating that this very small country that's located in the Holy Land with this one tiny little book that's seated all over the world, that adherents and people know of the book from one small group of people is really at the center of global interest right now. And you can see Javier Malay, who won in Argentina, went out to Israel. Elon Musk has gone out there, richest guy in the world. It's really kind of a global conflict right now, whether it's an open war, I don't think so. But you're seeing these conflicts between Palestinians and Jews all over the world, not just in the U.S. It's on everyone's mind. So it's almost like the precursor or the kind of uh, distant thunder of something in the future where people are going to have to pick sides. But yeah, Harbs, I think, had a really interesting take on things. And I think that a sensible thing would be to just create a Palestinian state and have it at that. But the real hardliners on the Israeli Jewish side do not want that. That's why they supported Hamas, actually, which is strange. Netanyahu just let out like a destroy Hamas order, but they supported Hamas originally because they had the one state solution, which is the hard riders, Jewish hard riders wanted as well. They don't want to share 
Although they do, they're actually in the Knesset. I think 10% of them are Palestinians, is my understanding. I have to double check that. But I mean, it's not like your adherence to the Knesset, you have to be Jewish and Jewish alone. But my thoughts about it is that it's almost like a biblical event in a lot of ways of these passionate political wars, but religious outlook wars and Muslim versus Jewish versus Christian conflict and people reevaluating their sensibilities in light of these events. So I think, I think all the whole world's watching all 7 billion people and you have like all these, the Arabs are all, and the Muslims are all supposedly together and you have Erdogan in Turkey, saber rattling and there's a flotilla in Egypt. So it's almost like a big board of risk in some ways with everybody in the U.S. has got its two aircraft carriers. And there's just a whole history. I mean, we're talking about deception in the U.S., but there's a whole history of false flag events in the Middle East. The USS Liberty, which a lot of people don't know about in the States, is an important one. Also, the Levon Affair, people can look that up as well. And just a lot of high intel trickery and assassination. So it's going to be an interesting year. Like if they say that Hamas can be targeted anywhere in the world, then we're back at the post-Munich thing where the Mossad, people can watch that movie by Steven Spielberg, but the Palestinians attacked the Israeli Olympic team in Munich, and then there was a recrimination like they wanted to get those guys. And that was kind of like a global attack. And actually, same things happened after World War II. There was a lot of things. Jewish people went after a lot of high-ranking Nazis. Man, it's just crazy to think where we will be in 12 months from now, like the same date next year. It'll be quite wild. There's so many agendas where the dial is turned up to 11, the fentanyl crisis on top of all these other things. And I don't know, it's hard to feel optimistic, but I guess I would ask you, I mean, in summary, do you feel optimistic about the future? Is it going to get darkest before the dawn, as they say? That seems kind of clear, but are you uh, ultimately pessimistic or optimistic? I'm optimistic on the sharing of information. So I'm glad to have the invite on this show. And I'm glad that people can talk in a different matter. I mean, it's interesting because RFK is almost not even going on TV news. He's doing all podcasts. and stuff. So something has changed for the better. So I'm optimistic on that regard. I would say pessimistic for the economic future of the United States and the way it's managed. I've told another podcast, I could literally go dig up a fentanyl addict in LA and put him in the Janet Yellen spot and he would do a better job. They're just total morons and losers. So I'm pessimistic about that and inflation and interest rates and the wasting of money in Ukraine, which was a fool's errand. And these two idiots got involved in a conflict. They thought they could weaken Russia. And there's been very clever, very competent, very questionably moral character people like Napoleon and Hitler who thought they could do that. And they failed. So these idiots didn't have a chance in hell. They never should have gotten involved in the country. And the neocons are running the country in the ground. So they're an embarrassment. So we've had some of the worst leadership in the short term that the U.S. has ever seen. So I'm pessimistic on that regard on a political and economic level and that they have to steal the election. So when they brazenly steal an election in front of our face this time, last time it was obvious, but it wasn't so people weren't expecting it. It was more of like a blitzkrieg assault like that. Whoa, how these votes change? Where'd all these ballots come from? Where's all? Now the dust is settled. It's obvious they stole the election. So if they steal it again, that's like we're in 
political turmoil like post-World War One Germany, which led to a disaster for humanity. They're really, the whole gestation of what happened in World War II started out of World War One with super high inflation and people getting blamed and all this debt. And they pissed off the whole people. Like Hitler was just kind of an avatar for a bunch of angry people. And you don't want that to happen in societies. Societies break down, people get angry, and you just embark upon disasters. That's, I'm very pessimistic. Well, that's a really good analysis, and I'm right there with you. It seems like there's just so many powder kegs just waiting for a match to be lit, and the timing in this next year is right to light those matches so that people don't see what's going to go on with the election, and there's just going to be chaos. I'm not looking forward to it, but business will be good for you and I. It's been great getting to know another conspiratorial podcasting colleague before we're snuffed out. But and before I cut you loose, let the people know about any upcoming guests you're excited about or just future projects you're working on, your links and all that good stuff. I actually will be talking with John Brisson tonight about the whole Israeli conservative Jewish outlook and their end of the world view. Like they kind of have a different end of the world view. They're different than Muslims and Christians, but it's all coalescing in the Middle East. So I'll be talking about that tonight. And you can see I'm over a thousand episodes on William Ramsey Investigates, you can check those out on iTunes or Google. And my books are available on my website, so you can get signed copies if you like. Or you can just buy them off of Amazon, my new book. It's gotten really good reviews. People like it. And my documentaries, I have five documentaries on the subject of the books or two documentaries about the Smiley Face Killers. And all you have to do is go to my Patreon, and it's five bucks a month, and you can just have at it. You can just watch it to your heart's content. I love it. Awesome. Well, good stuff. We really covered a lot of ground. I'm envious of your work ethic. Thanks again for your time and take care. All right. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. William Ramsey, my damies. Sadate, son, your pity on the runny kind and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> if you know, you know. But William is definitely well-respected in this conspiracy counterculture. Happy to have finally connected with him. I definitely don't think magic has to be all dark and evil and self-serving, but there certainly is that, and it is what William focuses on. But I thought, hey, let's see. This will be a good opportunity to add in the news about the ABC reporter, James Gordon Meek. You will find fact checks on the claim that he was a Pizzagate debunker, and I will say that that meme seems like it is a bit disingenuous. It doesn't seem like Meek was focused on taking the Pizzagate research down, like the meme suggests, but he did call it a debunked conspiracy theory while also, again, quote, sending and receiving pornography of infants and toddlers as well as content depicting sadistic and masochistic abuse of prepubescent children. This is a conviction, not an internet speculation. And again, like the Epstein cul-de-sac, no real information on who this guy was sending to and receiving from. You can't do that alone, right? But that material is about as dark as it gets. That suggests something really close to snuff porn. But you never really know. You just don't know if this guy pissed somebody off or colored outside some certain lines. It's such a dirty, compromising game that it's hard to ever know what can be taken at face value.
But still, I thought getting William here would be a good opportunity to slide in some of that information and talk about the Order of the Nine Angles as well as the Smiley Face Killer stuff. Those last two being subjects that I think would feel familiar to this audience, but are also kind of fresh. Maybe stuff you guys didn't know too, too much about. And maybe, as William thinks, there could be some overlap there. But just the idea of a group or cult out there that does prey on the inebriated and makes it look like an accident, that is as creepy as it is compelling to me. I used to really like that show, The Blacklist, because so many of the people in the criminal network were these types of people. It was very conspiratorial before it all went off the rails and devolved into silliness. But I think there was a lot of truth in some of the villains that that show crafted. And on that note, William Ramsey also folds in that pop culture symbolism that I like so much. His breakdown of Fight Club was also good. I think the Crowley 9-11 working stuff he has done is really interesting regarding the numerology of the flight numbers and all that context, though I think that was second hour stuff. Other second hour stuff, I think, was the West Memphis Three and Arthur C. Clarke and the symbolism in his work, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Occult Agenda of NASA, Gamified Reality and Mass Data Harvesting, Psychiatry and Therapy and MKUltra. And we got into some of his own podcast interviews that he and I both found compelling. MKUltra and the Grateful Dead, all sorts of stuff. You know the deal. If you like this show, get twice as much of it and become a Plus member. The links are right there at the top of your show notes. It's easy. You can sign up through Patreon to listen to Plus on Spotify, or you can sign up through the form that is attached to my website, and you can use either of the RSS feeds you'd get to listen on most of the major apps. I have the statistics of where you guys listen to the free show, and it's all Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Podverse, all of which can be used to listen to the Plus show. I try to make it as convenient as possible, so just help me help you and get yourself twice as much material from a show you seem to be enjoying. And speaking of enjoying, the last episode with Dr. Jeff Kripal seems to have been very well liked. 4.7 out of 5. I feel like that's as good as it gets. You're never really going to get a 5, even from paying members. But now that I've started talking about the rating and the comments of previous episodes, it seems like more people are going to the website to contribute to that. I got a few messages from people who were confused by this, but if you log into the THC website, there's a pretty lively conversation in the comments section of each episode and a place where you can rate every show out of five stars. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just data for me so I know what Plus members are thinking and what kind of shows they like and which ones they don't. And it just kind of came to me recently that recapping feedback from the last episode is a fun thing to do in the wrap-up. And I'm going to do it more consistently. So if you are a Plus member and want to contribute to that feedback, that is where I'm getting all this. But I agree that that was a really good one. I have a follow-up coming very soon that strikes the same chord and I think goes even deeper into understanding High Strangeness events. Good stuff. Keep an eye out. But also check the YouTube and social media profiles for video clips if you want to watch some of the highlights from the free and plus parts of this show and every show. 
the last one, the next one, etc., etc. But as for the meetup calendar at HiresideMeetups.com, where anyone can hop on there and make an event local to them to meet other THC fans, it's looking pretty light. It is the holidays, so I understand. But in January, we have the recurring monthly meetup at the Flame International Restaurant in LA on January 11th. And there's one here on January 23rd at Monday Night Brewing in Nashville, Tennessee. It looks like they got two for one brews. Well, now you gotta go. (laughs) But if you're feeling like you could expand your network of like-minded friends, this is a good way to do it. Hop on the calendar, make an event. If you hear about one near you, RSVP, it's just good manners. Also, I wanted to say, I do think 2024 is going to be an intense year. But listening back to what I said towards the end of this conversation with William, sounded a little doom and gloom. I don't really think it's going to be that bad. I think it's good to be prepared for a lot of manipulative ops. You should also try to probably have some financial cushion and cash on hand. But if you keep your focus on your actual life and your friends and your family and less time combing over the outrage of the week, I think you're going to be fine. You don't have to follow every crazy story. That's my job. And you can just get the cliff notes here. But you got to get enough sunlight, ground yourself, meditate, eat high quality food and focus on the things you can control. And then you're going to be in the best shape and position to face whatever it is that comes that you can't control, right? I'm not trying to be naive about the trajectory of things, but just don't let them play your mind and emotions like some kind of musical instrument, and you'll already be doing better than half of the people out there. (laughs) But that said, enjoy the holidays with your people. I'm going to squeeze in one more show between Christmas and New Year's, and I'll see you then. Take care, guys. Check out William Ramsey's work. Tell him you enjoyed this interview if you did, and I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, Order of the Nine Angles, Smiley Face Killers, and Ritual Event Workers. Your fucking move. This is important. Hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia, not in my head. It's just the hard truth. Knocked on your door while well, I still can To ask you a question Cause I know your head is still in the sand Don't be sheep till you slaughter for the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so See you know you go with the entities if you ever see
You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung fu? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway. It's a scary dark world, scarier every day. Scary dark world, no matter what you say. Scary dark world, don't think we'll be okay. Can't you see that we're so Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so- 